Welcome to the Terrible Podcast with your host from SteelersDepot.com, where you can find all your latest and greatest Steelers news. It's Dave Bryan and Alex Kazora, always lit, talking Steelers. And now, here's Dave and Alex. Welcome to the Terrible Podcast, Season 13, Episode 86. He's Josh Carty. I'm Alex Kazora, SteelersDepot.com. Thanks for being back with us here this Wednesday, Steelers Nation. And I said Josh Carney there because Dave Bryan is on his darkness retreat with Aaron Rodgers, I believe. Now, uh, he is out in San Diego for the next couple of days. So for today and Friday show, uh, Josh will be filling in uh, talking Steelers with me. So certainly appreciate uh, Josh doing that. You guys just heard Josh last week uh, during the Shrine Bowl discussion. He's obviously been a, a critical and, and key member of the site for so long. So Josh, appreciate you filling in for Dave today. Yeah, thank you for having me on again. Really appreciate it. And uh, glad to have Dave get a much needed vacation. Hopefully it is not a darkness retreat in San Diego. Uh, four days in a dark box with a slit for food does not sound <laughs> enticing. So uh, hopefully Dave is having much more fun than Aaron Rodgers may be. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, it, to not my cup of tea, but, uh, you know, Aaron <laughs> Rodgers wants to go spend four days in darkness. I don't really care what he does. I mean, he wants to do that. It's his life, not mine. So I don't know why he's getting all that criticism, but that's a whole different discussion for a different time. A mm-hmm. um, little bit later in the show, we'll have on Owen Straley, who was with you, Josh, at the Shrine Bowl in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago. I uh, wanted Owen on for the uh, roundtable. He couldn't make it, had another obligation. So we wanted to talk about um, his impressions, his evaluations. He's got an eye primarily towards the defensive backs and the receivers. And so we'll talk about some Shrine Bowl DBs and wideouts um, in a little bit uh, in the show. But we'll start here today. No major Steelers news here, obviously. Um, nothing you know breaking has come up since Dave and I last spoke on on Monday, though. I thought Dave on Tuesday had an interesting article and and Josh, you guys know, and listeners know we're not the site that's going to dot connect and talk about every single potential free agent and how they should come to Pittsburgh and they need to be a stealer. We don't like doing that stuff. It's generally low hanging fruit. So whenever we do write about that stuff and occasionally, of course we do, it's for good reason. It's pretty notable. And Dave had a really good article yesterday talking about Chase Winovich and potentially, you know, him becoming a stealer. Uh, whenever the new league year starts in March. And he's a guy that Pittsburgh had interest in coming out of Michigan and a guy that could be some outside linebacker depth. So I thought that was a well-reasoned argument by Dave. Obviously won't cost that much. Um, he's played with the Browns, so there's some more familiarity there in, in recent years. So what were your thoughts on on Dave's thoughts about Chase Winovich? Uh, I think Dave summed it up perfectly. I mean, you, you try to connect the dots when it comes to some of the free agent decisions they might make, some of the, the draft picks they might make. It's a little harder now that there's a new regime in place in a sense, but the Steelers have had interest in Chase Winovich dating back to when he was coming out of Michigan. I mean, obviously, as Dave pointed out in the article, he's a Pittsburgh native. You know, He played at Thomas Jefferson High School. Uh, he had never played at, at Acrisure Stadium uh, until this year with the Browns, and I think that was a big talking point. Uh, with him and it just it makes sense you know they're on a budget they're up against the salary cap there's some moves they can make to to free up some money but you know that third edge position is a, a huge hole for this team and it has been for a while uh, they've never really truly figured it out uh, outside of that year with when Bud Dupree was still here and Alex Highsmith was the backup but uh, yeah he he makes a ton of sense as that that you know budget friendly cheap veteran pass rusher 
I think Tomlin compared him to TJ Watt in 2019, uh, in a sense, you know, mature beyond his years, uh, hand usage and all that. It just, it makes a ton of sense. And I thought Dave did a great job laying it out and it would not shock me, you know, if the Steelers circle back on Winovich, uh, you know, they had the interest coming out of Michigan. I'm sure there was interest when he was a free agent uh, after his time with the Patriots. Um, So it it, it makes sense uh, that, that he could be a name that that's on the radar for the Steelers. Yeah, it makes sense. Pittsburgh, you know, even under the new regime of Omar Khan, Andy Wiley still have, you know, Khan internal promotion. Mike Tomlin, of course, still being there. They always circle back to these names. You know, we, we as much as anything, we look towards the pre-draft visitors from four or five years mm-hmm. ago. And and that's how we do a lot of our our dot connecting. And that's how, in part, Winovich's name, um, you know, resurfaces. My, my concern, though, is just and. You know, he had a decent start to his career in New England, but just one sack over the last two years, rotational type of guy, only played maybe, I don't know, just over 300 total defensive snaps the last two seasons. Is that going to be truly a number three, or or do you feel like you're not going to get enough production to justify him being a number three type? Yeah, I don't think you're going to get enough production that he's that number three type. I think he's a solid four with special teams abilities. Um, you know, kind of compete with Quincy Roche, who the Steelers brought back on a futures contract for that for that fourth spot. Um, you know, even if they do bring in Winovich, I think they still have to address that third outside linebacker spot, you know, in the draft, whether that's on, on day two or early day three. They just got to figure out the depth chart behind, you know, TJ Watt and Alex Highsmith. We've seen those guys in the last few years, you know, struggle with with injuries uh, throughout the seasons. They've missed time. Uh, you have to have a reliable guy behind those two. And I think we saw that uh, play out very prominently in 2021. Malik Reed was not the answer, uh, nor was Jameer Jones. So, uh, yeah, I think if you bring in Winovich, it's probably on a, you know, a a veteran benefit deal or or something of that sort. And he competes as the number four, but you still have to go outside the organization uh, in the draft and and shoot high for that number three guy that can, you know, play significant snaps and, and could, certainly step into a starting role if one of Watt or Highsmith went down. Yeah, I, that's kind of how I feel. Again, I, I could see Winovich happening. I think it certainly makes sense. Is that budget, you know, type of veteran depth option. But is mm-hmm. he truly going to be a number three? I'd rather go draft a guy, four-year deal, cheaper, younger. Uh, I think more upside overall if he's a number four than really what is he doing for you right now. They tried some of these veteran guys and Melvin Ingram fit, but obviously didn't like his role. Malik Reed didn't work. Taco Charlton didn't work. Derek Tuska didn't work. I think Winovich is better than Tuska and Charlton and, um, you know, those types of guys. Jameer Jones is the number four as a defensive player. But, um, you know, I think there'd be work to do even if you brought Winovich in. Again, I've always been in the camp of DeMarvin Leal becomes that hybrid type player, that big edge when he needs to be you know, sub package, third down interior type pressure, essentially how he was used this year when TJ Watt was out. That would be what I would do with the Marvin Leal. Will Pittsburgh do that with him? I'm not sure what their plan, what their vision is with, with uh, Leal in 2023. Mm-hmm. Do you think if they were to bring in, you know, Winovich type and obviously having Roche back on the futures, do you think that pushes the need for that third edge slightly down the draft board to like a day three, that fourth round, you know, 80 overall? you know, 119 overall range rather than maybe that, that day two in between picks 32 and 49. I, I would take a high Smith level approach in the sense of they drafted high Smith as a third round guy. I understand the situations were a bit different because Dupree was a pending free agent. They sure they knew they weren't going to be able to resign him. And so that was kind of the insurance that high Smith was going to start 
in a year, but I want I want high capital investment into my number three outside linebacker because it is such a critical position. Unless you're going to make Liao that guy, if you make Liao that guy and say he's going to basically be the de facto backup, then I think it lessens the need, lessens the uh, I don't want to say obligation, but the the feeling that you have to address that sooner than later. But you got to have you got to have guys behind there. I mean, Mike Tomlin's called outside linebackers the engine of the Steelers defense, right. and as you said, Josh, with T.J. Watt having injury and Highsmith has kind of battled through stuff last year and. Uh, in 2021, you got to protect yourself. I mean, if you lose any of those guys or either of those guys for any length of time, your defense is radically transformed the way you saw it without TJ Watt this year. So I'd rather go with a high draft pick, even if it is kind of a bit of a over drafting to justify the the snap count. I think just the protection, the insurance it'll essentially give you, and there's no guarantee the play works out, obviously all those caveats, but um, I think you want to have a, a higher draft pick than a lower draft pick to really try to get good, strong, quality depth in that position. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at. I mean, that that high Smith style approach. He was a third round pick, and it worked out perfectly. You've seen this team, you know, try and take flyers on Ed Rushers on day three, and it, it hasn't really panned out. But uh, you know, as important as this outside linebacker position is for this defense, you have to have that guy that can you know, step in and play 35, 40% of the snaps as a rotational piece. And that helps Highsmith and Watt stay fresh late in the games where they need to be on the field for those, those high level pass rush reps. And it also helps them stay healthy late in the season where hopefully the Steelers are, are pushing for a playoff spot. So I think you absolutely have to invest heavily uh, in it and, and with a higher draft pick compared to a, a day three lower round pick. Yeah, and I think, you know, we'll see what the Steelers' approach is. I'm pretty confident they're going to take a flyer on a pass rusher late in the draft. Now, will they do it earlier is going to be the question. If you look at what Andy Weidel did in Philadelphia, and again, he wasn't the one making the picks, but he was kind of driving the bus in terms of mm-hmm. setting the draft board and, you know, setting everything up for Howie Roseman. Um, Weidel gained that control in 2019. And so in 2019, they drafted Sharif Miller in the fourth round, a year where they only had a couple of draft picks in 2020. They drafted Casey Tuhill in the seventh round in 2021. They drafted Teron Jackson and Patrick Johnson late on day three. And in 2022, they drafted Kyron Johnson in the sixth round out of Kansas. And so they're always taking kind of shots on some of these, you know, pass rushers because they know how important that depth is. And that's how you mm-hmm. get to 70 sacks this past year because you added so many quality pieces and so many rotational guys and not just those names, obviously, but, you know, Hassan Reddick and, veterans like Brandon Graham, et cetera. But the philosophy in Philadelphia was always add pass rushers. Um, I think Pittsburgh will do that again. They could double dip, I think, with a late run pick, one of those two seventh run picks. But I think certainly you got to be looking at a, an earlier pick as well. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think you have to you know, seriously consider double dipping. Uh, you know, depth in the trenches and, and outside linebacker play is in the trenches at this point with the Steelers. You, you have to have that depth there. And uh, those guys to be able to to rotate in and out. And you saw it play out in Philly. I mean, they made it to the Super Bowl with just an incredible depth chart uh, along the defensive line from a pass rush perspective. And, and the Steelers need that. I know that they want to have their guys on the field, you know, 75, 80% of the snaps. Uh, but you have to have that depth that comes in and, and can take some snaps away and still be productive. And they just don't have that right now. So you have to invest. And yeah, I, I, I fully believe they're going to take a shot with one of those two seventh round picks on a pass rusher. All right, moving on now, staying with the draft, though. Uh, ESPN's Todd McShay had his mock draft go up this morning and has the Steelers taking Oregon cornerback Christian Gonzalez at number 17. It's a really strong cornerback class. There's going to be several uh, first-round first, name, uh, first round guys going 
off the board. And so I know you wrote that up uh, a little bit earlier today, Josh. What were your thoughts there on Gonzalez at number 17 to Pittsburgh? Yeah, it's a it's a common name that continues to be, you know, linked up with the Steelers in a lot of these mock draft exercises. Uh, you know, in McShay's first mock, I think he had Paris Johnson, the Ohio State offensive lineman to the Steelers. But uh, in this latest exercise, obviously, he had Johnson going a lot higher. Uh, so cornerback became a need there. And, you know, with guys like Joey Porter Jr. and, and uh, Illinois' Devin Witherspoon off the board in this exercise, he went with Gonzalez. And I'll tell you what, Gonzalez is kind of that that new age corner. He's 6'2". He's, he was on the uh, Bruce Feldman freaks list for his, you know, just athletic testing numbers. He's probably going to run in the four threes uh, when it comes to his 40 time. I think he was clocked at almost 23 miles an hour. Yeah, 23.3 mm-hmm. miles an hour on GPS tracking this past season. Uh, he's got a vertical jump of 42 inches. I mean, he just he's a physical specimen and and the tape really backed it up at Oregon. Uh, he transferred from Colorado, so he stayed in the Pac-12, uh, went to Oregon. And he only allowed 39 catches last year. I think his passer rating against was 73 or 74. Um, you know, he he was just he was a really solid guy, uh, just a very smart cornerback. He's not as physical as I would like him to be at the position, but the ball skills are, are really impressive. The athleticism is, is is fully on display in his tape, and uh, he would be a guy that is kind of a plug and play, um, you know, matchup cornerback right away in the NFL and. You know, I think he certainly fits, but uh, I definitely want to see more physicality from him in terms of, of coming downhill and defending the run. You don't have those teams in the Pac-12, uh, so maybe he just wasn't asked to do it as much because of the conference he was in. Um, I don't want to say he can't do it, but it's just it's a common name that's that's mocked with the Steelers, and it makes a lot of sense. I think cornerback is their top need uh, right along with defensive line and, and inside linebackers. So I'm uh, pretty pleased to see McShay go cornerback there. Uh, I believe Keely Ringo, uh, Cam Smith, and Brian Branch uh, in the secondary were all still on the board. So I can't really, um, you know, fault the decision to to go with Gonzalez here with McShay. Yeah, I get it, and I know I I know that Dave and I and and you've talked about as well the focus on the trenches, O line, D line. But you just kind of wonder is the value going to be there at 17? Now that's Mm -hmm. still a long ways away and who knows what everything's going to look like by the time, you know, late April rolls around. But, you know, in terms of the offense alignment, it's hard to really pin down a guy if unless a tackle falls and typically they don't fall that much defense alignment, trying to find that Steeler type in the first round. Uh, We talked about, you know, Brian Brisset with, with Dave on Monday, but outside of him, Maybe a bit harder to find a name. And so the value of the cornerback position, because it is such a strong class, there are so many names, you know, could that outweigh the 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 value and the grade of a defensive lineman or an offensive lineman? And, and Gonzalez is going to be one of those first round guys that may be too tough to pass up on if he slips and falls to number 17. Yeah, I think it's going to be very fascinating, you know, that 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 decision at 17 and how it affects number 32 overall. I mean, you, you talk about the offensive line depth. I don't think a tackle is going to be there at 17. So you're really kind of looking at, you know, Osiris Torrance, the guard from, from Florida It is mm-hmm. 17 too high to take a guard at this point. Do you try and wait until 32 to get a guy like Minnesota's John Michael Schmitz, um, you know, that interior versatile piece or, or do you take Torrance at 17 or the best available defensive lineman, whoever that may be and hope that a cornerback that you like and is a fit in your scheme is there at 32 or, or 49 overall. So it's, it's very fascinating. Uh, I think it is certainly a very deep cornerback class. They could take the risk 
and wait until 32. Uh, a guy like Utah's Clark Phillips, uh, the third could be a fit there at 32 overall, but it just, it's going to be very interesting to see how the board breaks leading up to 17, because if there's no tackles there, there's no real defensive lineman that fits. Do you go linebacker with someone like Clemson's uh, Trenton Simpson, or do you just take the top corner, which could be Gonzalez or, right. you know, South Carolina's Cam Smith, or, you know, if Illinois' Devin Witherspoon or, or Penn State's Joey Porter is there, do you just pull the trigger on those guys and, and, and address cornerback early and, and figure out 32 uh, after that? So uh, I find it very fascinating. I can't wait to see how it plays out. But uh, I just – I don't have a good feeling that one of those top tackles is going to be there at 17, and it makes it pretty hard to, to try and reach or uh, project on an offensive lineman at that spot. I know that McShade – doesn't make these mock drafts kind of with the the history aspect to it. Mm-hmm. But for us putting on our Steelers, what have they done? The Blues Clues. Last time they drafted somebody first round West Coast was DeCastro in 2012. And so mm-hmm. will they be at that Oregon Pro Day? Historically, they, Tomlin doesn't go out there. Will that change under Con and Weidel? We'll have to see. Um, but I just think about those things for whatever reason. Pittsburgh, just in general, they don't draft West Coast a lot. And especially in the top rounds. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, yeah, it's very it's very interesting because Mark Bruner is kind of their West Coast scout in a sense. I know he's just got the the general college scouting um, position on the staff, but he's kind of the go to guy on the West Coast. And they don't really draft West Coast guys for whatever it's worth. Um, he does a lot of work. He puts in a lot of time and effort on the road. He was in Vegas uh, the entire week, kind of leading the staff there at the East West Shrine Bowl. But they just don't for whatever reason you know, go with those West coast guys. So it will certainly be interesting to see, uh, you know, if Mike Tomlin uh, and the rest of the front office makes that trip to Oregon for the pro day. I'm just looking at the Steelers draft history right now, and I'm trying to get my geography right, but it looks like the last time they drafted basically anybody pack 12, you know, even anything close like Rocky mountains, West coast was Juju in 2017 out of USC. And then also that year, Brian Allen out of Utah. Uh, I'm trying to look at the, the last classes since then. I'm not seeing anybody that that's out West. And so that is, that was one of the things that, that made Pittsburgh pretty predictable. But again, the the question we'll have to kind of learn along the way is how much do things change under this new regime of Khan and Weidel? And we're not expecting wholesale changes and it's going to be tough to maybe ascribe certain moves and any changes to one man or because you just, you never know exactly who's kind of driving the bus there, but um, that has been one of Pittsburgh's quirks for years is they kind of are a, a East of the Mississippi type team. And so we'll see if that continues. Mm, yeah. That's, Actually, that's well, no, I think no. Yeah. I'm trying to see. No. Okay. I thought I saw a West Coast guy before then, but I, I, I had that wrong. So uh, we'll see. But I, I think just to the idea of cornerback Gonzalez for McShay, that's a, that's a fine pick there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a fine pick and, and we'll see how it plays out here and with the combine. And I'm sure they will meet with him at the combine. That's kind of a formality, but uh We'll see what happens with the pro day stuff. If they make that trip out there, if they do, then he should firmly be on the radar as that guy at 17. But uh, for now it's just speculation. And then, but he's certainly a fit moving forward. Do we know the whole pro day schedules? Uh, I don't think they've released yet. that yet. Honestly. Uh, I'm looking at something. It uh, looks like there are some out there. Let me see if I can see Oregon's. It's going to be March 14th. Yep. At 10 30 a.m. So that's right around the start of the new league year. And they've uh, what got else a lot is... of prospects. So 
Yeah, that's true. Are there any other competing pro days in the 14th? Looks like Northwestern. I don't I don't know if I'm looking at a full exhaustive list here, but uh, right now I'm just seeing Northwestern. I'm sure there'll be others that day, but we'll yeah, see. I'm, March I'm just 14th. seeing Northwestern as well. So March 14th is a big day. Sticking with the draft, this will be a pretty draft-heavy episode here uh, for Josh and I. And again, nothing super urgent, nothing um, you know earth-shattering. But I thought PFF had a, a controversial article yesterday uh, as Mike Renner went through the biggest draft mistakes for each team over the last five years. And for Pittsburgh, they didn't go Devin Bush. They didn't go Kendrick Green. They didn't go anything else. They went essentially saying that Najee Harris drafting him in the first round in 2021 was their worst mistake. Now, they didn't say directly that it was Najee Harris. They just said the idea of drafting a running back over offensive line, kind of doing it in the reverse order where they're building outside in as opposed to inside out. That was their evaluation. Obviously, PFF, not a fan of taking running backs in the first round, not a big fan of running backs in general. So I'm not surprised to see that slant. But to call that the biggest mistake of the last five years, when you have Devin Bush, when you have Kendrick Green, to me, seems a little, little out there. Yeah, it was a little disappointing to see that, but I kind of figured just with the way PFF operates and their belief in running backs, not saying it's right or wrong, uh, but they they definitely do not like running backs in the first round. I kind of figured they were going to list that as as the the biggest mistake, especially after you know guys like Creed Humphrey, uh, you know who they were connected to, have, have gone on to to be a star uh, in the league. Harris hasn't quite gotten there, but. Um, I don't think Najee's a, a bad player whatsoever. I think he certainly needs some help up front, and the Steelers are in the process of of certainly doing that. Um, but I didn't really have an issue with the pick when it happened. Uh, you know, I think I had more of an issue with the selection of Kendrick Green, uh, you know, in the third round and then trying to pigeonhole him into being your day one center. Uh, and it, it backfired uh, in rather spectacular fashion. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that, that to me is their biggest mistake over the last five years. You know, it felt like a, you know, Oh crap, we need a center. This guy played some college, uh, some center in college. Let's get him. Uh, And and it just, it has not worked out. And they obviously had to spend some money in free agency to to correct that mistake rather quickly. Um, But that is the the biggest mistake. I don't view Najee Harris as a mistake. I think they got a guy um, that they, they evaluated as a, a, a top tier running back. Uh, you know, who can run the football, who can catch the ball in the backfield, is a good pass protector, um, is a, a very good guy in the locker room overall, off the field as well. I, I thought that, you know, the character probably came into a significant factor with selecting him. Uh, right. I don't view him as a mistake at all. Do I like running back in the first round? Not, not really, um, but he's a good player. He's a productive player. Kendrick Green is by far the biggest miss for me, though, Alex. Even over Devin Bush. Yeah, I think so, because Bush Bush flashed as a rookie and then obviously got hurt. Um, you know, the last, what, 2021 was a, a, a train wreck for him, um, mm-hmm. you know, in no uncertain terms. I thought he was better this past year, um, you know, not up to a top 10 pick. But I, I think without the injury, we, we feel a lot differently about Devin Bush. But with Kendrick Green, I think all of us with Steelers Depot were just completely off that pick originally. I, I don't even think he was on many of our boards due to his measurables. Um, so it, that that's the one where it was like, initially, this doesn't make any sense. Then they're going to make him play a position he only played four games in in college, and he's going to be the day one starter. This this isn't this isn't a good decision. So, um, yeah, I, w- I would give Green over Bush 
just because I thought Bush's rookie year was was solid and he was on the right path before the injury. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I think I think Kendrick Green was the worst evaluation of the two for the yeah. reasons you mentioned that they tried to because Mike Tallinn, you know, at the, I think in 2021 said that they, they drafted Kendrick Green because they wanted a day one ready experience center and Kendrick Green was none of those things. So that mm-hmm. was a really confusing comment. Um, but I think Devin Bush was just simply the more costly pick, obviously, because he's the first round guy and he's the guy you traded up from 20 to 10 to go get. And so, you know, teams miss on third round picks. Obviously, there was a big cost of that and it hurt the team in a lot of ways in 2021. But, you know, that that's more common than the guy that and especially for, for Pittsburgh to trade up, you know, their history of trading up yeah. was Troy, Santonio Holmes and now Devin Bush. And one of those things is not like the others. And so just the the weight and the cost of um, the investment in that. I think the evaluation on Bush was, and this could be debated some, was better than Kendrick Green. I understand why they took Devin Bush. They wanted that athletic linebacker, sideline to sideline type to replace Ryan Shazier. So I understood where their head was at. And I was a, a pretty, I like Devin Bush coming out of college. I know Dave and I had some really good debates. I think Dave has been proven more right about Devin Bush than than I was. But I can see where their head was at for Devin Bush. I really struggled to understand where their head was at when it came to Kendrick Green. Yeah, that that's that's spot on. You know, I, I totally understood the decision to trade up for Devin Bush. They thought they were getting that Ryan Shazier like linebacker that was going to plug that hole, uh, you know, at, at a, a key position defensively. And, and early on, it looked like, you know, maybe they were going to be right. Uh, and then obviously the injury happened. But yeah, with with Kendrick Green, you just never saw it. And then especially with Tomlin's comments afterwards, it, it really made you wonder if we were dealing with the same Kendrick green. Like, was there <laughs> another Kendrick green out there that, that they wanted to select and, and, you know, accidentally pick this one because Tomlin's comments were so far from the actual facts with Kendrick green that it made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly understand the argument with Bush uh, giving up that draft capital to move up into the top 10 uh, and, and get him and it not working out. But uh, I just, I do have a hard time kind of moving on from the, the green mistake because there were there were some other centers out there. Correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Quinn Miners uh, still on the board at the time or did he go just before? I think um, he went right after Kendrick Green went. Okay. So, and I mean, Quinn, Quinn Miners hasn't been great with Denver, but I think we all liked him a lot more than Green and could certainly see the fit at center, uh, especially with the, the senior, the work he did at the senior bowl that year. Uh, and, and had more experience at center in college than Green did. So um, that's that's in large part why that's the biggest mistake for me because they they completely whiffed on that pick and 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 we had to uh, slog through seventeen games of Kendra Green at center for uh, for one season. Yeah, I think regardless of how you order it, Bush or Green, you know those are both bigger whiffs, bigger mistakes than the Najee Harris. And I understand. And listen, you know. I can appreciate PFF stance. I, I'm of the mindset of building things inside out. I think you have good trenches to mm-hmm. your running back's going to look better. It's harder to do it the other way around. But, you know, if you look back to 2021, the next offensive lineman who went after Harris was taken to 24 wasn't until pick 37 with Landon Dickerson, who had who's, who's a good prospect and I think has a bright future in Philadelphia, but had his medical concerns coming out. And I don't think many people thought him as like as clear, can't miss first round type of guy. Um, so mm-hmm. there wasn't like an offensive lineman staring Pittsburgh in the face that they passed up on to get Najee Harris. I mean, Christian Darisaw went one pick ahead uh, of Pittsburgh to, to Minnesota at 23. So 
had there been that offensive lineman, and, and it was Creed Humphrey, but he fell. And listen, I love Creed Humphrey as much as anybody. I wanted them to draft Creed Humphrey at 24, but um, there wasn't that you know pick at 25 or 26 that set offensive lineman that Pittsburgh deliberately passed upon to get Najee Harris. So I think it kind of weakens the argument of this team valuing running back more than they valued offensive line. Yeah, and I, I think the common argument you, you would hear, counter-argument to that is, we'll just trade down, you know, trade down and, and you know, you get more picks and, and, you know, take a Landon Dickerson later in the first round. But the, the Steelers don't really do that. And I think having a guy like Harris inserted into the culture uh, of the locker room and of the team moving forward was far outweighed, you know, gathering a, another mid-round pick to move down a few slots. So I, I think they they trusted their evaluation on Najee. They they believed in the player and the person, and they thought he was a good fit. And he has been. I mean, obviously, yeah. First part of last season was a little frustrating, but he, he was clearly not healthy. Uh, and he he finished the season strong. And I think he's a solid running back. He's not a elite level running back um, by any stretch of the imagination, but he's he's very solid and and fits exactly what the Steelers are trying to do at this point, which is run the football um, like they did in the past. And uh, we saw that in the second half of the season. And I, I think he's been a, a, a solid first round pick. I, I don't really have any issues with it outside of that, that 30,000 foot view notion of no running backs in the first round. Yeah. He's a good player. And my big brain take is draft good players consistently. <laughs> and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be better for it coming out the other side in that, that long term. And I understand it may not be the optimal value, but, you know, he's a good player, and there were a lot of bad players drafted in the first round that year, as there is every single year. So if you can do that with him and Pat Frymuth, you you can and you will make it work. Um, now, I think this team, you know, will they reinvest with, with an offensive line this year? We'll see. It's been a long time since they had a high pick in offensive line. That's certainly, I think, a valid and fair critique of this team. They've not drafted an offensive lineman in the first or second round since 2012 when they did so with David DeCastro and Mike Adams. And so... Um, you know, we'll see if that changes this year. It's kind of a, a coin flip if it will or not. But um, if you draft good players, you're going to be okay. And they drafted good players and Najee Harris and Pat Fryerman. Yeah. And I think the great thing is too, and I know some people don't care about this as much, but you, you got a team captain in his second year with, with that pick as well. You know, that's, that's important within the room. And um, I, I just think the, the character of Najee should weigh heavily against, you know, the perceived value of the position um you know draft good players draft good people uh, mm -hmm. and you're going to have a, a successful program in a sense and i think harris has helped that in many ways with pittsburgh in his first two years yeah and they're going to be leaning on harris again in 23 uh the yeah. offense should at least it better open up to some degree but there's still going to be a run heavy approach and again well, not again, but just to make the point that Dave and I have talked about before, Jalen Warren's been good for this run game. It's been good for Najee Harris to have a, a more committee than asking Harris to to be everything. And Harris is no longer the workhorse every down, all situations back. But I think he's in some ways better for it to stay fresher. And you saw him, you know, look healthy and strong the second half of the season. So mm -hmm. I think we're both in agreement. Not the biggest mistake, and it seemed to be the general feeling from the uh, the comments uh, whenever I wrote that article up. Mm -hmm. All right, Josh, uh, we'll take a pause here. I want to get to Owen Straley to get his thoughts on the DBs and whiteouts from the Shrine Bowl. So we'll take a pause and come back with Owen. And welcome back to the Terrible Podcast. And as Josh and I talked about at the top of the show, uh, we're having on Owen Straley, who covered this year's Shrine Bowl over in Las Vegas. Owen was una unable to make the meeting we had last week with the Shrine 
Bowl roundtable. So he still wanted to get Owen on this week to get his thoughts, analysis, impressions on what happened. Owen, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So just overall, we'll spend about 20, 25 minutes with you just getting your thoughts. I know you're, you're a played, you know, defensive back in college. And so that's kind of the lens in which you really look uh, towards your scouting uh, towards. And so just a, a very basic question off the top, who was maybe that one DB that surprised you or stood out the most during the week of Shrine Bowl practices? Yeah. So for me, that would definitely be a, uh... Catrell Clark out of Louisville, a uh, little bit of an undersized kid, about 5'10", 176, what he measured in at. Uh, I had him as one of my five guys to watch prior to the event. Uh, he was a two-time All-ACC kid at Louisville playing on the boundary and then kind of had some talks with his coaches before his senior year um, where, you know, they both kind of agreed for his draft stock and uh, their development as a defense, it might be better to kind of move him inside a little bit more, make him a little more versatile before coming to the NFL level. So uh, in Vegas, he played in the slot. He played on the outside and uh, was making a lot of plays at the catch point throughout the week. Um, and then especially uh, in like, you know, the run and screen game, I uh, just showed to be a really physical kid. And I think it was day three, I did a film room on him. He was by far the best player on the field for either team that day. So was definitely super impressed by him. Uh, just competitiveness at the line of scrimmage, at the catch point, and then particularly the physicality that I think will translate really well to the slot at the next level. I know it's still so early and, you know, rankings are going to fluctuate with the combine and pro days upcoming, but is he a day three type? Where would you roughly slot him right now? Yeah, I mean, I think, Earliest, probably late or late day two, um, just based on, you know, size measurements, right. kind of, uh, you know, the team still uh, undervalue the uh, nickel slot position a little bit. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I mean, probably I, I had him, I think, uh, uh, late day three or late day two, early day three. Okay. Let me just ask you a very big picture question. I know to, I know that he's kind of kicked inside, and so it'll be less relevant for him, but you mentioned how he was kind of playing more of the boundary earlier in his career. How tough of a transition do you think that is for the outside cornerbacks? Because obviously in, in college, the hashes are wider. There kind of is more of a true boundary in, in field side, less so in the NFL. Is that a tough adjustment for those kind of more pure boundary corners in college to consistently play with more space where the receiver can really kind of run a fuller outry? Yeah, I mean, I think naturally to the boundary, um, a lot of it gets developed by kind of how they release off the line of scrimmage. So, mm -hmm. you know, if they release inside, say, I mean, they can really only run like a slant at that point from the boundary. Whereas when you get that wide and field, uh, you got to be really conscious of like kind of that big post and, uh, you know, digs different routes where they can kind of run to space. So, I think for a lot of guys playing the boundary, you have a little bit of help from that uh, that overhang, usually the the will linebacker to that side. So anything that they're going to run in breaking, you've got a little bit of help, whereas to the field, they've got a ton of room to hit it between um, the corner and the apex player, which is considered the first player inside of the corner to that side. So just a lot more space and a lot more isolated. And then as far as moving from the boundary into the slot, now you kind of open yourself up for that two-way go where right. it becomes really hard to kind of get up and crowd them in the line of scrimmage. 
Josh, you have a question for Owen? Any, anything that you wanted to ask? And know you guys were were there together. Yeah, Owen, you know, we went into the week talking about uh, Terrell Smith from Minnesota, kind of that bigger, longer corner, uh, pretty physical overall. Just what did you see from him uh, early on in the week? And, and where do you see his fit being uh, in the NFL? I know that uh, our own Tom Mead had a, a draft profile up on him um, shortly after the Shrine Bowl. But that was a guy we kind of talked about going into the week that uh, we were intrigued with. Yeah, to me, he was uh, he was interesting because just watching his tape at Minnesota, he was able to, despite mainly playing on the boundary, uh, he played a lot in the box. They, they blitzed him off the edge quite a bit, uh, was really, really did well for himself, kind of boxing, uh, pulling guards and sending runs back inside. So that was impressive to see. Had him as another guy that I wanted to watch heading into the week. As far as ball skills, I didn't necessarily think – they were like top notch. I mean, he does a good job of playing, you know, when he can kind of squeeze receivers from the upfield shoulder, he does a good job of playing through the hands, but he's not much of a high point guy. I don't anticipate him being a, you know, high level uh, takeaway guy. And then as far as the speed, I think he told us that he was looking to run like four, three, he had a ridiculous 200 meter uh, dash time in high school, uh, 20.84 seconds was fifth best in the country at the time. And I think a lot of times with guys like that, he sort of reminds me of Terrell Edmonds in um, yeah. an athleticism sense where he's a really, really great long speed guy. But I think kind of some lack of explosion and, and twitch in the hips might kind of put him into trail position more uh, more often than you'd like. So I think I talked to you about it a little bit. I could potentially see him kind of becoming more of like a box safety dimebacker type at the next level. Mm-hmm. He's got a role, but I'm not sure if that role is a full-time boundary corner. Yeah, he he was a track star in high school. I think that's the thing that stood out to us initially, along with his just general size. Um, you know, I know that he had a, a pretty solid first few days there. I think he had the breakup in the end zone uh, in team sessions there late, but, but kind of disappeared as the week went on. Um, you know, the only other guy I wanted to ask you about, Owen, and I think he's a <laughs> he's a personal favorite for us. I know you're going to have a, an interview with him coming here later in the week, but uh, UAB's Starling Thomas V, just tell us about what you saw from him. Uh, you know, I, I think he caught your eye right away in practice, just with his overall build, his movement skills, his mentality. Yeah, so he's actually one that um, I had done a little bit of research on coming into it, but then when we were talking about guys we wanted to interview, Joe C uh, gave him a mention. So I was like, oh, that's another guy who's gonna say take a look at him. I'm definitely going to. He's a uh, he's five foot nine, but he's 194 pounds, so he's a little bit bigger in the frame, and I think that actually could allow him to potentially have some inside outside versatility at the next level. He was on uh, Bruce Feldman's freak list, uh, 2022 first team all-conference USA, had 15 pass breakups this past season. And uh, he did some kick return and punt return stuff at UAB too. He was fielding punts and kicks in uh, Vegas as well. He, to me, is an extremely, extremely twitchy athlete. And, you know, that's obviously a big plus. But I, what I really loved was uh, the technique that he plays with. He's extremely low in his stance, super patient, and kind of off and catch man coverage. And he really did well for himself in some battles with uh, Liberty's Demario Douglas throughout the week, who, you know, I think we can both attest to this. Douglas was torching everybody in one-on-one sessions and mm-hmm. seven-on-seven sessions. So to see Starling be able to hold up in those matchups and be competitive at the catch point was definitely extremely encouraging. 
And again, just ask the question. I mean, that seems to be, is he a borderline day two guy or is maybe the lack of height going to knock him down and, and teams just trying to figure out what to do with him? To me, um, I think I, I think he said he didn't have a combine invite at the time, I believe, mm-hmm. when we interviewed with him. But mm-hmm. to me, he's the type of guy where the difference between him and Clark is Clark's probably at best like a 4-4 something guy. When it comes down to testing, I, I genuinely think, especially in a pro day setting, Thomas could crack like four three or something. So that's mm-hmm. enough for probably bump him on some team's board on day right. two. Actually, let me ask you about any any small school guys, whether it's secondary or just any small school, as it caught your attention. Because I always have an eye towards those types as they kind of play up against you know some power five and division one types. Any small schoolers anywhere that that caught your attention, Owen? Uh, not as much. They added um, that DB from Portland State later in the week. Yeah, Anthony Adams. But um, I- I'm trying to think, uh, Josh, was there any small school receivers that were uh, particularly interesting? I I, I mainly watched receivers and uh, DBs at this one. I mean, I-, I don't I don't consider him small school just because it's an HBCU. But but Shaq Davis was interesting. You know, I was kind of talking him up all week. Um, outside of that, I mean, I, I know that we were intrigued by by Jadakiss Bonds going in from Hampton, uh, but he kind of had a rough week as well. But no, nah, nobody nobody really stood out small school wise um, at, at receiver, and certainly not at defensive back. I mean, the only one you could really make a case for was Nick Jones, but that's Ball State; mm. it's not that small. Right. Um, so there really there really wasn't anyone that was that that small school you know, feel good story that, that, you know, improved their stock significantly over the week. Oh, and let me ask you about wide receiver then, since obviously you're watching DBs, but you're watching the relationship between DB and receiver, what receivers, if any, caught your attention? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we only got to see uh, one day of Zay Flowers, but he came out and I thought immediately showed kind of why he's being projected where he is. Um, Great. I mean, obviously you watch the tape, like elite after the catch type stuff, but he actually is a really good separator at the line of scrimmage and was doing a nice job. It's just kind of nuanced route running. Good job of leaning on DBs up top to create space and was really good at the catch point. So he definitely impressed in his one day out there in uh full work. I thought, um, who was it? Uh, Liberty's Demario Douglas again, just really great uh, nuanced route runner from the slot was just uh, able to kind of separate with ease all week long. Um, UCLA's Jake Bobo, a little bit more of a limited athlete, but bigger frame, uh, very, very technical route runner. And he was still able to kind of create enough separation and had really good hands at the catch point. So I think he's an interesting guy to me at the next level because I don't necessarily think he has the uh, wiggle and ability to separate at the line of scrimmage to stay on the outside despite his bigger size. So I think he might be potentially looking at a big slot type role and um, kind of some moments from other guys. Like we talked about Shaq Davis. I thought A.T. Perry had some moments, but uh, those would be the main couple. Just putting aside the evaluation and the tape, I know you guys got to speak to these players. Was there anyone that was really fun to talk to anybody that was super engaging or had a really interesting backstory, just even regardless of how well or how poorly they played on the field, was there anybody you talked to that you said, man, that's a guy that just a story that should be told. Um, 
I, I really enjoyed talking to Harvard's Truman Jones. Um, yeah, part of that's you know, he, he grew up, I grew up 30 <laughs> minutes from Harvard, so I have okay. enough experience kind of watching that and seeing that. But just a an interesting kid. I mean, he put on about 60 pounds from the time he got to Harvard. He was originally going to be an off-ball linebacker, switched to a 4-3 defensive end. And then this past season, you know, kind of, again, them helping him out a little bit, um, trying to get him ready for the NFL draft. Uh, gave him some work as a 3-4 outside backer, dropping into coverage. So he said that was, you know, a bit foreign to him. But uh, he was definitely a, a strong kid that I think looked looked raw out there. But mm-hmm. there's definitely some uh, – some kind of clay to mold there on that one. And then um, uh, Jaden would be as well. I enjoyed that conversation, just kind of him going from Florida state to uh, BC. I was kind of able to ask him about the differences between the defense he played at Florida state and what they play under Halfley, which is a little bit more in that uh, kind of Ohio state family. So that was just interesting as far as a kind of schematic development. Yeah, I think oh, I know with Truman Jones that Tom Mead has a report coming up on him uh, in the next couple of days. It'll get posted on the site. So certainly look out for that. Uh, Josh, did you have any other questions you wanted to ask going about uh, just what his impressions and takeaways were from the Shrine Bowl? Uh, I, I wanted to go back to, to cornerback quickly. Um, you know, a name that, that kind of surfaced when we first landed in Vegas was, was Indiana's Jalen Williams, just because of the conversations uh he reportedly had with, with ike taylor at the hula bowl obviously ike taylor former Steeler, great is now in the scouting department um you know i think we we tried to watch jalen williams when we could but oh and just what were your impressions from him uh as the first part of that question and then the second part just what was your biggest takeaway uh from the week in, in vegas that that being your second year there yeah so um on jalen i think uh definitely a slot guy I mean just like kind of smaller bit of a limited athlete it seemed um had good ball skills when he's able to locate the ball and in phase I thought he was calm enough out of phase playing the pocket but um to me I just didn't see enough like high-end athletic traits for a guy of his size to think he's going to stick long-term at the next level. But he definitely seemed to be a high IQ guy. You know, I think if he's in the right system, he could probably be, you know, like a good communicator and things out there. Um, So I, you know, I can see why Ike would, you know, like him, you know, DB to DB, but I think he, he was not, I wouldn't say one of the most like, you know, five impressive guys I was watching out there specifically at the cornerback position. Um, and then the just kind of bigger takeaways, I think the further and further I get into the scouting of this, it's so easy to get um, so focused on results based. You know, how did this guy win or lose this one on one rep? Uh, how many how many reps did he win in team set? How many pass breakups? And I think the more and more I'm looking at it is I focus more on uh, traits and how how does this guy project? outside of this setting because we talked about it last year with uh Brock Purdy who did not look great at all in Shrine Bowl practices mm-hmm. and you know a lot of it comes down to it's a practice setting there's no full contact they're working with people they've never worked with before it's super vanilla offensive and defensive schemes so it's hard to you know make baseline impressions of oh, Deshaun Jameson got beat deep for a touchdown in one-on-ones. You know, I don't think he has the long speed to play at the next level. So just kind of trying to be more patient with guys and um, take a take a more 
wide uh, eyed approach. Yeah, I think that's a great approach to look at the traits and how things translate and, and not be that prisoner of the moment based on one rep or one practice because it's just a very small piece of a very large puzzle. I just want to ask you about, I, I know it, it probably doesn't matter all that much, but as somebody who's played college football, been through practice settings, was there any difference between the way that the Patriots ran their practice versus the way the Falcons ran their practice? It sounded like from things to Josh and others said, Last week, there was kind of a difference in energy and tone and just style. Not saying it's good or bad, but what difference was there between the two two sides? And um, do you think that was maybe beneficial for one side or the other? Yeah, so uh, the Patriots, I thought, ran it more kind of like a traditional practice week where it was uh, intense and physical on the early days before they kind of ramped it down for more of a walkthrough on day four. Whereas, um, you know, we kind of talked about the Falcon staff and almost felt like they were playing catch up after maybe they had gotten some tape of the other practice or something, because it was kind of light on days one and two. And then on day four, when, you know, it's supposed to be kind of a dress walk uh, through rehearsal before the game, they're going, you know, full on speed for basically an entire practice. So that was interesting. Um, And then I thought the Patriots also had a little bit more uh, of the competition periods earlier in practice. And then finally they did some, you know, a lot of, a lot of people will do the wide receiver DB one-on-ones. I liked that they also incorporated the uh, two-on-two drills where, you know, you're kind of working on how to deal with stack formations and different mm-hmm. things of that nature. You know, two-man route concepts with kind of, it, it's, it's a more realistic look in my opinion, because, you know, 90% of the time you're in some kind of pattern match teams aren't running that much straight man, particularly coming out of the college level. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you guys, uh, Owen, and obviously everybody, everybody else that was there did a tremendous job. So can't thank you guys enough for the coverage. Just have a couple minutes left. I want to just kind of pick your brain on some Steelers topics. I want to ask you about Cam Sutton and kind of just a very broad baseline question of what to do with Cam Sutton. Uh, I, I think we're both fans of him, the way that his game has grown, the versatility that he has, the value that he creates, but I personally, to a degree, wrestled with, you know, do you pay this guy, you know, 13, 14 million per year? And if so, is he really that true number one type corner? Or do you pay him that money and then have to go try to still find a number one type corner? What is your evaluation of Sutton and how his game has grown, what his value is, and if he really can be a, whatever it means to you, number one corner in this league? Yeah, so me and Josh actually talked about this one a decent amount in uh, Vegas. I think with Sutton, I mean, he offers you so much more than necessarily being just that, you know, quote unquote, number one corner. I mean, what they're able to do with him, you know, effectively, he can move into the slot. He can play that dimebacker. A lot of the invert stuff they do involves him. So those are, I think, you almost would need three separate guys to replace the skill set that Cam gives you. is he ever going to be, you know, a guy that can line up and, and travel with Devontae Adams for 60 snaps in a game? Probably not. But in that same vein, there's probably three guys that you're comfortable with allowing doing that in the NFL. So I think I think the whole number one corner thing could be a little bit overstated when, again, I think you got to talk about how many guys are just true, you know, bona fide. I can trust him in an isolated matchup for an entire game guys, you know, they don't exactly grow on trees as far as re-signing him. I think you need to. And I think to me, the big thing is if you're going to re-sign him and let's say draft a guy with 
the first or second pick in the draft. I don't think you're necessarily doing that to replace Cam Sutton. I think you're potentially thinking a year down the line and saying, okay, Levi Wallace has a good season. Maybe that's the guy we can let walk. So you're kind of, you're investing money into the position now. And then, you know, if you're to pay Cam now, by the time this rookie hits, say, his his fifth-year option or his second contract, Cam's contract is probably winding down. He's a little bit older. So I think the timeline exists where you could potentially bring a first-rounder in, work him along slowly with what I think is a pretty good secondary in place right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think long-term, definitely want to look to add another guy to that group as well. Yeah, j- just to be clear, I, I wouldn't drafting a corner high wouldn't be to replace Cam Sutton. Obviously, if you're going to pay this guy and, and pay him handsomely, he's going to start. He's going to have a you know an every down type role. Just and and I understand. I think number one corner can be a little too vague and broad the way that number one receiver can be. But just in the idea of you know you're facing Jamar Chase twice a year, do you have a guy that you feel like you can put up against him to battle and fight? And of course, you're not going to win all of those battles, but you want a guy that you feel like you can put out there against him twice a year for the next decade because he's not going to leave Cincinnati anytime soon i'm sure um and so that would just be the thought uh, you know not just just because of the cost it may take to sign cam sutton the high level top 15 type corner money um to to maybe not be that high level coverage guy but i think obviously he's gotten more comfortable on the outside had a really strong year in 22 and and for the reasons you mentioned oh and the versatility he offers uh that's the value in, in trying to bring that guy back just wanted to ask you the question because it's something i've just kind of wrestled with and kicked around let me ask you as well just about the slot position obviously cam sutton can and uh, more towards the back half of the year bumped inside do you think they should get a mike hilton type kind of a pure every all situations type slot or should it be that kind of committee approach where Millette was playing you know rundowns and sutton would bump inside more passing downs and norwood can do it occasionally would you like to see them have kind of a guy in the slot? Or are you okay with kind of the, the by committee approach they've taken? Yeah. So I think the beauty of having a Cam Sutton again, is that you can, you can go into the draft without being pigeonholed into, okay, we need to fill the slot. Okay. We need to fill the boundary. So I think ultimately they're probably looking to take best available there, but yeah, I think ideally you'd like to have them, uh, you know, I just profiled a, Travis Hodges Tomlinson, who sat out at the Shrine Bowl. But I think that, you know, those are the kind of interesting names. Uh, Kittrell Clark as well, another guy from the Shrine Bowl. But guys where you can play them, like you're saying, as an every down nickel, because, you know, they, they like to use nickel on first and second down. And the problem is, I think, especially, you know, when you start playing, let's say maybe like the Browns or a team that can kind of give you a heavy look and then spread you out. All of a sudden, you know, you can get a talented slot receiver matched up on, say, Arthur Millette. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, never going to kind of work to your advantage. So I think the best you can be to find a guy that can both function as a run defender and also function as a high level, you know, coverage defender in more than just underneath flat and curl zones, which is kind of where Millette's limited to right now. So ideally, I think, yes, you'd like to find that guy because, I don't think you're going to make Sutton that guy permanently at this point, especially with what he's shown on the boundary. Right. Especially if you pay him 13, 14 million, you know, obviously he's going to move around, but you want to keep him on the outside to justify kind of the, that cost. Um, who who are your top corners in this class? Just of all the names in there, it seems to be a really strong quarterback class, especially under class and especially first round guys. 
I don't. I know you're probably still working your way through some of the tape. Maybe you don't have a definitive answer on that. But of the Witherspoons and Joey Porter Juniors and Christian Gonzalez's, et cetera, et cetera who is maybe the, the the top guy you're you're feeling right now? Yeah. So out of the uh, out of the top guys, I've evaluated uh, Cam Smith. Really, really liked his tape. Kind of remind me a bit of uh, Stefan Gilmore, just a bigger guy that can you know move around. Really good technician. So I enjoyed his tape a lot. From what I've seen on Witherspoon, he's a pretty uniquely gifted, you know, athlete and you know, extremely physical player. Um, Porter, I think I'm always a little bit wary of the kind of lack of ball production guys. Just, you know, I think it's it's tough to see it necessarily translate at a high level to the NFL if you're not producing it at the college level. Um, haven't gotten into Gonzalez as much as I would like to. And then it's kind of going to, you know, keep keep working on him throughout. I think I'm I got uh, the Utah kid, uh, Clark Phillips, the third that I'm working on next. Um, I just did a uh, Rajon Wright as well out of Oregon State was pleasantly surprised by his tape. So I think that's a interesting kind of day two, day three guy to look at a little bit longer. Gotcha. Josh, any final questions for Owen? No, I, I don't. I think you, you pretty much covered it there. Um, you know, I've told Owen this. Uh, every time he writes something for the site, when it comes to cornerback play, I learn something. And I think he's just a, a massive asset to have for the site and, and for the team overall. And uh, it was it was just a blast working alongside him uh, in Vegas once again. Uh, you know, that was the second year in a row that we kind of shared a room there and, and, and tag team uh, practice coverages. And you just you learn so much just being around him when it comes to, you know, coverages and, and technique and all that. And I feel like I'm a better evaluator just spending a week with him each year. Uh, I, I just can't say enough about what he brings. Yeah, I think, Owen, you're so articulate and specific. And I think scouting and projections is all about specificity. And, and, and anybody can just say some of the broader big picture stuff. But when you kind of really get into the details, I know obviously with your background playing the position, um, playing college football, it helps. But Really appreciate that. Do you have fun in Vegas? Do you have a good time just besides all the all the football stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we were actually me, me, uh, Joe, Joe Clark, and Joe C were able to uh, do a do a little bit of gambling. Uh, went went much better for Joe C than everyone else. So, <laughs> so I've heard. I'll leave it there. What were you playing? I know what Joe C was roulette. Were you doing roulette? Yeah, we were. Doing? Well, we were originally kind of just bumping around, played a little bit of everything, and then. You know, me and me and Joe Clark looked at each other and we were like, hey, you know, it might be time to tail some of Joe C's bets. So <laughs> we were able to win some money back doing that. But uh, Oh, man. I'm glad you did. Oh, and thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. We're going to have you on either before the draft and probably one of our roundtables or after the draft, uh, assuming this team takes a defensive back at some point. So always appreciate your insight. And thanks for making time for us, Owen. Yep. Appreciate you guys having me on. And welcome back to the Terrible Podcast. And again, our thanks to Owen Straley for his great and, and measured insight. And uh, really appreciate having his perspective as somebody who's played the game and uh, just, just really valuable information. So always excited to hear from Owen. Yeah, Owen was fantastic. You know, like I said, uh, he I just I learned so much from him every time I interact with him when it comes to coverages and defensive back play. He's so valuable to the team. Uh, and, and just having that that experience at, at the college level at the position, being able to bring that to an evaluation standpoint uh, is just huge for the site. And, and I think he does a great job and is incredibly valuable 
uh, to not only us at Steelers Depot, but to Steelers Nation in general. Absolutely. So let's kind of continue, though, with our draft conversation. I know it's been a couple of days, but I want to, you know, since you're on, Josh, talk about your first uh, Steelers mock draft that came out on the mm-hmm. 10th and uh, your seventh round kind of first crack. And again, it's a first edition. A lot of changes will happen. Don't have a lot of blues clues for agency. will will adjust things. But let's just kind of walk through it and kind of talk about each pick and, and why you went there. Um, talked about corners a, a little bit ago about Christian Gonzalez. You have a corner going to Pittsburgh at 17, a different name, though. Devon Witherspoon from Illinois. So why him and why corner? I, I currently have Witherspoon as my cornerback too in the class. Uh, just, I just, I think he fits uh, everything the Steelers want to do defensively. He's he's that, you know, position versatile guy can play the boundary, can play the slot. He's incredibly physical. I mean, a lot of his tape, he just comes downhill, sticks his face in the, in the fire and, and really lights people up uh, really good ball skills. I know that there's some concerns about the size um, overall, I think he's going to come in right around five, nine or so. Um, but he just has that, that little people mentality that Mike Tomlin talked about with Arthur Millette, like just mm-hmm. physical, uh, huge chip on his shoulder. He can handle any role you throw at him. Uh, and I, I think he'd be a, an ideal fit, uh, for the mentality of the Steelers defensively. And it would certainly emerge as one of the top guys in that cornerback room. And that is with me assuming that, um, you know, Cameron Sutton will be retained before free agency starts. So I think if you do that and then you get a guy like Witherspoon, I think your, your cornerback room is rebuilt rather quickly. Um, you know, Witherspoon might be that slot only guy, uh, but I think he is a significant upgrade coverage wise from, you know, guys like Mike Hilton and, and Arthur Millette in the past. So he could certainly play, um, you know, all three downs on the field from, from the slot position, but uh yeah, I, I think he's one of the top guys in the in the class. Uh, you know, he won the Tatum Woodson Defensive Back of the Year Award in the Big Ten. It's a pretty high-level award. Uh, I think he won the Jim Thorpe Award as well this past season. So um, the production is there. The tape is is really, really good. Uh, and I think he just he just screams Steeler to me, if it makes sense, just his, his you know, play style. Right. What about round two? Going trenches here with Daywan Jones, the big tackle from Ohio State. Yeah, you saw him uh, for one day in, in Mobile. <laughs> he had one practice, and he kind of lit the world on fire in that practice. Um, but yeah, again, just that that you know that that big person. Uh, obviously, the Steelers had interest in Daniel Falele uh, the previous year out of Minnesota, kind of similar size. Uh, Jones just really impressive on tape. I, I think he moves pretty well for his size. He's, he's certainly powerful. Uh, I think he's a right tackle exclusive guy. I think he could play left tackle in a pinch, but not exactly where I think his, his strengths are Uh, reminds me a lot of Orlando Brown jr. Obviously we know quite a bit about him from his time in Baltimore. And now he's the starting left tackle in Kansas city. Uh, But Jones, you just, when you get a chance to grab a guy that size who moves that well, you know, he's six, eight, 375 pounds. Like I think you have to take a a shot on him. And uh, especially if you're going to be a run heavy offense, I think he's Mm -hmm. a, a better fit. Uh, for the Steelers moving forward under Pat Meyer than maybe a Chooksakor for is at right tackle just because of his ability as a as a run blocker. Do you think let's say hypothetically they draft day one Jones? Does he start day one, week one? Oh, probably not. I think they're going to roll with the same starting five from last year at least to start the year. Okay. Uh, but I, I I think he could certainly. Um, work his way into starting playing time. I think he would be that, that uh, extra offensive lineman, the Trent Scott role mm-hmm. early on. 
Um, you know, and I, I think with, with more experience and more development under Meyer, um, I think he could move into that starting role. I haven't watched a lot of his past pro, his past pro tapes. I don't know exactly how well he uses his hands in terms of, you know, is he shooting two hands or does he do the independent hand usage? So that might be a learning curve for him right. uh, and why he might be, um, you know, on the bench is kind of that, that, that extra lineman uh, early on. With the original pick in round number two, 49th overall name that's become really popular in Steelers mock draft circles, Keanu Benton from Wisconsin. So I think I know why he's there, but I'll ask you the question, why Benton at 49? Yeah, it just checks a lot of the boxes the Steelers look for. He's kind of one of those lone guys right now that that fits what they look for at the position, size, weight, uh, experience. Obviously, there's a lot of interest from the senior bowl. You kind of turned me on to his tape. Uh, early on in this process when you pointed him out as a guy to watch and uh, really impressed with him overall. Uh, I thought he had a really good season at Wisconsin. And, um, you know, I, I do think the Steelers will find a way to retain Larry Ogunjobi. I know I'm probably in the minority mm. there, but okay, I really think that even if they do, they have to invest in the defensive line, kind of that same conversation we had, uh, you know, about the Ed's position. You, you, you have to have that depth and uh, I don't think the Steelers quite have that right now based off of some of the guys uh, that we saw last season. So, um, yeah, Benton just checks what they're looking for. I think he can, you know, move all over the defensive line. He comes from a, a really good program at developing defensive linemen in Wisconsin and uh, just a name that that really fits uh, what they need in the trenches. What's your thought process on Ogunjobi returning because I think it is probably a minority position not saying it's wrong not saying that it, it can't happen it's been right. just really quiet on Ogunjobi about his status but but what's what's the thought there I think just the, the familiarity uh getting another year to to show that he can you know stay healthy rebuild some of his stock I think he flashed a lot at times mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think just having that familiarity and and obviously that clear-cut role uh will be enticing to him I'm not I think it'd be a one-year deal again. I don't think it'd be a multi-year deal, um, but he still has a ways to go to kind of rebuild that stock after that foot injury. Cause uh, you know, I know you know this, but uh, you know, he previously agreed to a three-year, I think it was $41 million deal with the bears in free agency last year and obviously failed his physical. Um, and I know that he was, was dealing with the foot injury early in training camp and wasn't as, productive as he has been in his in the past in his career but uh i just think you know another year to kind of rebuild his stock have a clear-cut path to um starting level snaps uh, in right. pittsburgh would be enticing especially playing next to a guy like cam hayward true true good point all right third round you might have to help me on the pronunciation i <laughs> looked it up before but do you, do you know do you know the pronunciation can i just pass the baton off yeah. to you here okay yeah third so round it, pick. it's a uh, henry to to from alabama okay. Uh, you know, a guy that uh, was a, a three-year starter at Tennessee, was a team captain there, and then he transferred to Alabama uh, for the 2021 season, emerged as a leader there, and then shockingly went back to school uh, for the 2022 season. Uh, had a really good year from the Crimson Tide. I know he's slightly undersized. I know he's listed at 6'2", but he's probably going to come in around 5'11", um, about 225, 230. Uh, I know that there were a lot of people in the comments saying that that's a bad pick because he doesn't get off blocks. And if you didn't like Devin Bush, you're not going to like toe to Oh, but I don't, I don't see Devin Bush in his tape. Um, you know, I see a guy that can play all three downs. You know, he can, he can slide on ball and rush the passer. He can play off ball. He's good in coverage. He's got really good ball skills for the position. Um, 
Yeah, he certainly struggles at times to get off blocks. I, I will say that. He can be swallowed up by some of those SEC guys, but he also has the ability to kind of just process things a lot quicker than a guy like Devin Bush you know, did in his time in Pittsburgh. And I think that's going to help him at the NFL. He's going to see things faster, be able to slip some of those blocks and be in position to make plays. Uh, and I, I think obviously with you know Bush hitting free agency, Robert Spillane hitting free agency, right. Marcus Allen hitting free agency, you're going to need to invest – early uh, at the inside linebacker position. And I thought 80th overall was kind of that good slot for him. Yeah. Fair, fair take there. Uh, round four, kind of a, a Calvin Austin 2.0 yep. with Tank Dell out of Houston. One of the smaller players in this year's draft was at the senior bowl and certainly turn head. So what's your thoughts on, on Tank Dell? Yeah, very similar to, to Calvin Austin, the third. And I know that I got a lot of pushback in the comments on that. Uh, I, I know I'm kind of on my own Island here, but I'm not, entirely banking on Calvin Austin, the third entering the 2023 season. I know obviously he had the foot injury. He looked good in camp at times, uh, but he's never played in a preseason game, let alone a regular season game. Um, You know, he obviously didn't come back from the reserve injured list late in the year. I think they need that, that yak guy. And and if you're banking on Calvin Austin being that, and it doesn't work out again, then you're in a tough spot. I kind of just want to add that that similar style. And even if Calvin Austin, you know, pans out, then you have two dynamic after the catch guys. Uh, you know, Dell isn't the best route runner, but, you know, even in, in Mobile, I just continue to see clips of him, him getting open and, and making plays. And uh, his tape at Houston is a lot of fun. I just I want a guy that can, you know, take a short pass and and house it from 70 yards out you know they need that explosive style playmaker and you can never have too many of those yeah no i understand that you know austin that that rookie season being washed with a foot injury especially you're never quite sure how those guys you know bounce back i i worry about it being a bit too redundant but i i understand the point that that, uh you're making there josh so the seventh round picks i'm not too familiar with so uh, just kind of roll through the the two seventh round guys and and why you you picked them yeah, two guys I saw in Las Vegas at the Shrine Bowl. Uh, 236th overall, I grabbed Jerome Carvin, uh, interior offensive lineman from Tennessee. Uh, 20 starts at left guard, 17 starts at right guard, five starts at center in his career at Tennessee. Uh, and that's against elite level SEC defensive linemen. You know, he played Georgia every year, Alabama every year. Uh, this guy was a, a, a two-year captain uh, at Tennessee, five-year starter. Uh, came into college as a four-star right tackle prospect uh, and uh, eventually kicked to, I believe it was left guard initially uh, because Tennessee had Trey Smith, uh, who's obviously a a starter for the Chiefs now at right guard. Um, Carvin, just a really smart player. Uh, He's slightly undersized, but I think he could be that that solid interior depth guy uh, at the next level, can wear multiple hats, Um, you know, knows what everyone's supposed to do at every position. You could put him at right tackle in a pinch. He's done it a few times at Tennessee. Uh, I was just looking for, for depth and versatility uh, in the trenches here, especially on the interior. And, and he fit it perfectly. Um, High character guy, experienced power five. I thought he had a solid week in Las Vegas. Outside of Carvin, uh, I went at 248th overall in the seventh round. I grabbed Andre Jones, an edge out of Louisiana. Again, a guy I saw in Las Vegas at the Shrine Bowl. Uh, Seven and a half sacks last season for the Raging Cajuns. Had 17 and a half for his career, uh, 30 tackles for the loss. The thing that stood out to me was just his build. 
just under 6'5", 250 pounds, 33 and a half inch arms. Mm. Uh, he just, he looked different on the field compared to some of the other edges that were in Las Vegas. Uh, really used his, his length well. Uh, good get off off the football. Uh, he hit one of the linemen uh, in the pass rush drills with the DeMarcus Ware fake spin. I had not Ooh. seen anyone else try that uh, yeah. throughout the week, but he hit him with the fake spin. He showed a good ghost rush, a long arm. Uh, I think he's a solid developmental piece worth taking a shot on. Uh, did not play much special teams at Louisiana. Uh, very early on in his career, he did, but sophomore year on, he really didn't. So that could be an issue. Um, but those that size and, and some of the pass rush moves that he showcased had me very intrigued. And I thought it was a good seventh round flyer to take. Yeah. I think the build is certainly where you want it to be. And we just got done talking about, uh, we think that Andy Weidel's going to have influence on those mm-hmm. late round Darth row pass rushers. And Andre Jones seems to be a, a tremendous fit there. And then Carvin uh, with the other seventh round pick versatile pedigree power five, that seems to check all those boxes as, 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 uh, as well. So I, I like both of those picks. Yeah, and I'll obviously have another one coming here later in February. But uh, yeah, the only the only pick I, I wasn't super set on, honestly, was the Tank Dell one because I there is that redundancy. I, I do love his tape overall, but I was struggling to find that that home run threat, that you know right. that developmental Z guy that you can maybe kick inside or you know what have it. But uh, that's the guy I settled on. Uh, what was what was your most concerning pick of that mock. Yeah, I just uh, probably tank Dell just because of how similar it is to, mm-hmm. to Calvin Austin. And I understand, you know, you don't know exactly what you're going to get in Austin, but I think to, it's just a little too hat on a hat, but, yeah. but I, but, but Dave and I had this conversation too. It's kind of hard to find that slot receiver because typically you have the two types, the small types that are the tank Dells, the Calvin Austin's of the world, then your big slots or, Cooper Cups, Juju's, uh, what Chase Claypool tried to be in Pittsburgh, uh, Chris Godwin. And for Matt Canada, I think he wants that smaller type to, to use the jet sweeps. You know, Steven Sims, Gunnar Olszewski, that's how those guys were used this year. And so if you take one of those smaller guys to probably some extent, they're going to be kind of similar to Calvin Austin, you know, quicker, uh, you know, space type of players. So I think regardless of what name you slot in there, it's going to probably have some overlap based on what you already currently have on the roster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was certainly hard to find that. And even in Las Vegas with the Shrine Bowl, there weren't those those small, quick slot guys. The only guy that really fit that that uh, that role or that that I guess those traits was Demario Douglas from Liberty. Everyone else was kind of that bigger uh, physical slot guy. I know that uh, Doctor Mel and and Owen are very high on uh, UCLA's Jake Bobo, but I just I'm so worried about guys that don't create separation and rely on contested catches a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think big slot can work, but will it, is that what Matt Canada wants? I mean, it didn't work with Chase Claypool and he wants guys that they can move around with all that orbit motion and and receiver run game type stuff Mm -hmm. and RPO screen game. And so that typically would, you know, drift towards the smaller traditional type of slot receiver. So it's kind of hard for me to find that guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I I don't fault anyone for banking on Calvin Austin the third coming back. You know, I I was very intrigued by his tape, and I was hoping we would get a look at him late in the season. Obviously, that didn't occur, but I'm not going to fault anyone for for banking on him and, and kind of slotting him in as the uh, you know the slot receiver, the number three in this offense. I just I personally have concerns, especially when you talk about a foot injury for a speedy guy like Calvin Austin the third that kept him out for his entire rookie season. Um, 
I don't know what the history is on that in terms of NFL overall and guys that missed their entire rookie season. Um, but I just, I have concerns there and um, yeah, Tank Dell was certainly, you know, kind of the same thing, very redundant as, as uh, Calvin Austin, the third, right. but yeah, the tape, I am just very, very intrigued by, especially after the catch. Gotcha. Well, nice mock draft overall. You said you'll have another, will that be after the combine before the combine? What are you thinking? I'm probably going to do one the week before the combine okay. and then I'll wait. And, you know, I know you and Jonathan Heitritter are going to probably roll out mocks right after the combine. Yeah. I'll probably wait a few weeks there uh, and kind of just watch more film and see how some of the chips may fall. But yeah, I'll have one right before the combine. All right, cool. Good deal. Last thing uh, we wanted to talk about today. It's just a real brief side note, kind of jumping off of the Super Bowl, watching Kansas City get those two walk-in touchdowns with Kadarius Toney and, and Sky Moore and just kind of the overall view of watching the way that the Chiefs dominate in the low red zone and, and their use of motion to, you know, in, in scheme overall and, and scouting to really use teams' rules against them. And Chiefs talking about how they knew that the Eagles would overrun that that initial jet motion. And so they, you know, doubled back and, and kind of, you know, went back to the flat and got the Eagles out of position for those two walk-in scores. And I just went through the 11 shotgun pass plays inside the five-yard line that Pittsburgh had this past year to see what kind of, what did they look like? How much motion did they use? What were the concepts? And it, it, the offense, obviously, you know, going through the tape, and you see that in, a, in an article I wrote for Steelers Depot yesterday, you just see this offense being a lot more static on seven of the 11 uh, plays that I'm talking about. There was no motion at all on on, only two of them. There was motion at the snap. And so um, you just felt an offense that, you know, had a decent motion rate overall. I think they they were the 10th ranked offense in terms of motion, just generally speaking, but in that low red zone stuff where uh, space gets tight and you really want to have scheme that wins out, didn't see as much of that. So just one thing to watch for next year, hopefully to see more motion and just um, and you're just finding ways to exploit what defenses do, what their tendencies are. Yeah, and I think that motion this coming season has to have more purpose to it. Yeah. Um, you know, it might not be for that play specifically, but you've got to watch what the defenders are doing. I think that's what Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy, and the Chiefs did a fantastic job of on those two touchdowns uh, in the Super Bowl was – you know, they had seen how the Eagles kind of tried to pass things off in the secondary and communicate and just using the return motion uh, and, and scheming them up on the same play on opposite sides of the, the formation on back-to-back drives was just masterclass stuff from, from Andy Reid. And uh, I think if the Steelers are going to take a step forward uh, in 2023, you have to be able to, to have success in that lower red zone, kind of like you pointed out. Um, you know, that video, it's a minute long with all 11 plays, uh, in the lower red zone, it's very static looking. It's very just, hey, here's one on one. We're counting on our guys to win. Right. Um, I understand the belief in your guys and 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 putting them in those situations to go ahead and win a matchup. But you also have to try and scheme things up and make it easier. And it it doesn't feel like the Steelers are doing that at all. Uh, and that's concerning because it feels like sometimes when you're watching some of these explosive offenses in the NFL, it's like they're playing a different game at times. Um, so I think you did a great job with that article. And yeah, it was it was remarkable to watch the Chiefs just kind of toy with the Eagles in the mm-hmm. lower red zone. And and to be fair, that this hasn't started with Matt Canada. No. It's not brand new. This happened under Todd Haley. It happened under Randy Feetner and, and it's happened under Matt Canada. And so it's not exclusive to him. And, and obviously, when you have Patrick Mahomes and the great weapons that they yeah. have, you can unlock and, and do more. But 
you know, those two uh, specific plays with the motion, you don't need Patrick Mahomes to run that kind of motion. You can have anybody, you could have me back there and you could run the motion. You know, we wouldn't complete the pass, but you could run the actual motion. You could <laughs> game plan and, and be inventive and creative in that. And I would argue that teams that don't have that level of top tier talent need to be more creative to, to combat and, and, and go against and win against top defenses like the Eagles. You better have something super creative because if you're tr- just trying to win mono e mono, you're going to lose against a top-tier defense like Philadelphia. So I think, if, if anything, in Pittsburgh, it becomes more important to win schematically because you might not have the, the personnel talent uh, matchup advantage. And that's going to be the challenge for Matt Canada this season. I thought at times last year he did a good job of building things off of certain looks he gave and certain plays that were run uh, down the stretch. But you have to have that recall as well from, from watching other teams in the league right. and how they defend you know, a a certain situation. I think you had in your article, um, I think it was the chiefs kind of stole what the Jaguars did when they ran the same concept uh, against the Eagles earlier in the year, they saw how the Eagles defended it. The chiefs kind of tweaked something slightly. And the next thing you know, it results in two touchdowns on the biggest of stages in the NFL. So um, you've got to scheme up ways for your guys to win. I think that's the key to coaching uh, in today's game. You know, you're you're going to have the pieces on the field, but, your scheme has to be solid and you have to outcoach the other guy. It's, it's that simple. And uh, just letting your guys try and win one-on-one isn't really uh, outcoaching anyone. So you got to try and give your, your, your guys a leg up with the scheme. And that's going to be the challenge for Matt Canada this year. Right. Because odds are Pittsburgh will not have the top offense in the AFC next year. The Bengals mm-hmm. are going to be better. Chiefs will be better. Bills will be better, you know, et cetera. So you're going to have to, find ways to gain an edge and the chiefs gained an edge in this game in a very evenly, you know, match contest by some of the schematic wins in critical situations like low red zone. And you got two of the easiest touchdowns you're going to see in Super Bowl history, um, you know, purely based off of scouting and game planning and, and scheme. And you don't have to have a plus talent to, to run that kind of stuff. So uh, just one of those thoughts, one of those things we'll be looking for next year. Mm-hmm. When was the last time the Steelers were, above average in the red zone offensively. It, it hasn't happened often. It happened one year under Randy Feetner. I think it was 2018, I believe. They were actually had the number one red zone offense in one of those years. I want to say 18 because in 19, they had the 32nd ranked yeah. offense when they lost Ben and everything yeah. went to crap. So it was like you know first to worst, uh, I think was the, the thought that I had there. So uh, under Todd Haley, they always underachieved. They weren't terrible. But they, they would be like the eighth or 10th or 12th best red zone offense when you had some of the, you know, best offensive line, Ben and AB mm-hmm. and Bell. And I always feel like that unit didn't always finish drives. They weren't bad the way they are right now, but they weren't as good as they should have been. Um, Beatner got them good for one year. And then over the last two years, it's been, I think in the twenties and this year it was a uh, 23rd under Matt Canada in 22. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's rough. But uh, again, it's not anything out of the ordinary from the, from the Steelers. You know, they've had the one good year and every other year it's kind of just been, very bland and in the key area of the field. Uh, So if they can just kind of figure that out and get closer to that top 10 than the bottom 10, uh, I I think they'll have a lot more success. All right, Josh, any final thoughts, anything else you wanted to discuss today? No, I'm, I think that's it. Uh, I'm sure uh, something will happen this week with Dave away. Mm -hmm. It just feels like that's kind of how it goes. Um, But uh, yeah, I hope Dave's enjoying his vacation uh, much needed on, on his end. So, uh, Outside of that, man, I appreciate you having me on and uh, trusting me to, to be the co-pilot here. It's uh, been a blast. 
yeah, it's been a been a lot of fun. And again, thanks to uh, Owen Straley for for hopping on. And we'll see what Friday brings. It'll be at least me and Josh. Maybe we'll we'll invite somebody else. If not, then it'll just be the two of us. So I'm realizing I've forgotten to write an outro because I never do these <laughs> outros. So we'll see how this thing goes. No reader emails. Uh, Dave has the the email key, and so uh, we didn't get a lot of those. I think on Monday probably don't have a whole lot of emails right now anyway. So those will probably return uh, next week. But be sure to follow Dave Bryant on Twitter at Steelers Depot. Be sure to follow Josh on Twitter at by Josh Carney. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Kazor. If you want to make a donation to the site, there's a link on the homepage. Appreciate you guys hanging out with us today. Thanks for listening. To, oh, let me let me start over and try again. I almost got to the end and I go too fast. And then we're, we're keeping all this in. But let me just do the actual outro here. Thank you for listening to the Terrible Podcast with Josh and Alex. Thank <laughs> you.